0: Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandspring. Oh, the urge to open the
1: show by bursting into it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, my Como
0: almost overwhelmed me. But I held myself
1: back. How you doing,
0: Simon? Uh, well I'd, I'm not too bad thank you very much other than being on the recovery end of a um, a heavy cold that I've had all week but I've been tested more times than a bunny in a Pfizer lab Ooh. so I know that I've not had COVID um, and indeed have, um, have had my booster yesterday so aside from a splitting headache um, I'm doing all right.
1: Oh it's been a Great week for boosters. I, I was boosted, uh, as was my wife. That sounds slightly Python-esque. On Wednesday, so uh, yes, and uh, and topical with some of the stuff we're going to kick about today. It's my party, and I'll lie if I want to. Oh dear, what a, hurt, yes. what, a, what a hurtful show title, and it makes it worse that that. I've, I've even come up with that one myself. So uh, horribly outnumbered today from, uh, from uh, in terms of me sitting on the right. But um, we've got a couple of guests. So um, welcome. And if you'd like to introduce yourself, um, Lee.
2: Yeah, good evening, everybody. And thank you for the invite onto your show. Um, so I'm Councillor Lee Hunt. And uh, I'm a Liberal Democrat at the City Council. And I represent Nelson Ward, which covers Stamshaw, Tippner, uh, North End and Buckland. And I also happen to be the chairman or the chairperson of the planning committee.
1: Marvellous. Welcome, Lee. And Graham. welcome.
3: Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Uh, nice to be invited on the show. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I'm Graham Haney. I'm a Labour councillor for St Jude Ward, elected in 2019. And I'm the Labour Group's spokesperson on traffic and transportation.
1: Marvelous. Well, thank you for for joining us. We did invite uh, a couple of members of the the local Conservative team. They couldn't uh, they couldn't make it, so they've they've left me out in the cold to defend uh, defend our team all on my own. So uh, I'm sure you you gentlemen will be kind and full of the Christmas spirit with
0: me, Simon. Well, yeah, it's not like we're having a party or anything, is it? No, so, no. Um, <clears throat> uh, so no,
1: no rules have been broken.
0: Oh, God, it's going to be a long show, um, isn't it? Yes, it it, it might be a long and painful show for you, but um, we know that you're not one to try to defend the indefensible, Ian. Um,
2: We could do a a secret Santa if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what I'm asking Chris as a Santa for, and we might come to that towards the end of the show. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. If yeah. Um, so, um, or a very secret Santa. And um, anyway. So. <clears throat> so yes. Yeah, so we wanted to look at um, at a couple of things in our last show of 2021 um so um, it was the full council meeting on Tuesday the December the 7th um so we wanted to look at a couple of things that took place in in that meeting uh, one of which was looking at the um, there was a report back to the council on the tipna West also known as Lennox point um, development stroke proposal stroke idea um, that um, and this report back was the the um, was the result of a motion brought to the council um, earlier in the year uh, by the Labour group Um, so we'll we'll talk through that a little bit Um, and um, then we'll also um, we're also going to look at one of the other motions which was brought by the Conservative group uh, which was um, looking at the planning backlog Um, so that's going to be interesting to talk about obviously um, with the chair of the uh, planning committee um with us here. So that'll be good for us to hear about how planning actually works and whether there's planning in planning. Um and um yes, we we're not gonna get away with not talking about party gate or what that might mean for um for the Prime Minister, whether that's is having some sort of impact um, in North Shropshire's uh, by-election, which I- which the polls open for next Thursday, um, and various other things about, where, you know, how that kind of lands with the public um, regarding their um, them having faith in the Plan B measures to tackle coronavirus and the Omicron variant. So let's turn our minds eastward, no, westward even, to Tipna West, to that lovely little splodge of land to the left of the m275 as you look north um that currently is is home to um a few things and um a load of wildlife and some uh, tidal mud flats um and there's a long ongoing conversation that in the in the council chamber that that conversation is about what to do with Tipna west it's actually apparently been going since the mid 70s so um nothing like rapid change um but Lee, did you want to start by telling us what what's the what you know what's what's the why's and wherefores with the Tipner West Stroke Lennox Point thing, and where where are we at at the moment?
2: So is um, I think the uh, it was quite well covered in the council meeting. I wasn't there, but I watched it on TV. Um, I couldn't get there because the PCR test hadn't come through. Um, so I, I regretted that because I would have had a bit to say. But um, it started in about 2013, I think, when we agreed the city deal with the government to lever in 48 million pounds uh, of monies in order to work up the agreement. So I've heard lots of people complain, well, you spent this amount of money to do But that's what it was there for, is to work up the um, propositions. Um, so that's been ongoing. The drilling's been ongoing to look down into the soil and i've had several briefings about it i know all other members have been briefed um uh unfortunately not all members have been able to attend briefings and so on but you know but anyway so they've been drilling down into the soil seeing what contaminants are there and my understanding is there's arsenic and uh, other long-held contaminants in the ground going back to the days of nelson and tar and tarring the ships and all these sorts of things so all that's got to be remediated before anything can get going. So we've come to, let's say, we came through our admi- previous administration, then the conservative administration in between for four years. That administration continued to support um, what we've turned out to be called the super peninsula. Um, and Donna was quoted as saying, oh, the development will um, be a boom for our... Area, so this included, very importantly, very high quality maritime jo- uh, jobs in the maritime sector based around what, what we all know as pounds yard. Um, and so, of course, there was also a proposition to reclaim um, some of the mudflats. Now, that's where me and some of my colleagues parted, where I parted company with the planning. I was not at all content with that. And uh, some of you on here will know I voted against that particular proposition in the cabinet. And I've been more free since I've come out of the cabinet to um, speak about it. Um, I'm personally very concerned about the environmental issues connected to this. But I think it's become rather a a political football um, with some some councillors even saying, although they're not here to say so tonight, uh, that they didn't want any any building on that piece of land at all which of course departs from the agreed council position um when it was voted upon the city deal was talked about uh which every group decided they wanted to forge ahead with so that brings us up to the council meeting last week
0: okay thanks lee um so um yes so the so the, the, the deal that you that you speak of was um, was an agreement with, uh, with the government for um, we're just under £49 million uh, pounds, uh, to invest in the infrastructure that was going to be necessary to make then the site a viable um, development proposition. Yeah, pl-
2: Playing for planning consultants and uh, yeah. uh, investigating the ground for all the reasons I've spoken about and to work up to bring a planning application to the local planning authority
0: okay so it's kind of getting it to a point where because otherwise in on a normal kind of market perspective it would be too expensive for anybody to develop without that kind of investment shoehorned in at front i guess is that is that kind of the theory
2: well i don't know the land i don't i don't i don't know about that but it is pretty expensive to um Mm -hmm. work up a project like this it it, Mm -hmm. uh, it is expensive you need an awful lot of experts people who are looking at the soil people advising you on the natural environment um People who are advising you on what sort of houses that you might want to build there. Um, some people want to see all social housing. There is a the question then: if you do all social housing, how will that then pay for the sea defences? Um, it won't, mm-hmm. quite frankly. You do need private elements in there, uh, and you because the you heard at the council meeting that. Every meter of sea defences, and we must have sea defences there, otherwise, people in Tipna Road and Tipna Lane and across North Tipna and parts of Stanchel will flood um, because sea levels are going to rise 70 centimeters by about 2050. That's what the scientists say. So, we have to work through these things, and we can't just ignore them.
0: No, I- indeed, and um, and uh, Graham, was, I'll I'll come to you in a, in a in a tick, so that just so that um, listeners are aware that um, that um, that deal, that funding from central government, it requires um, the placement of two thousand three hundred seventy homes, fifty eight thousand square meters of employment space, um, three and three quarter thousand uh, new permanent jobs, one uh, one thousand three hundred temporary construction jobs, um, mm-hmm. so that it. I guess the, the the idea being that it kind of leverages the ability to deliver all of those things for all of the various reasons. So you know what what's the Graham? What's the what's the kind of what's the barriers and the and the stoppages that we're seeing here? What's the is is it likely to happen?
3: Well, it's not clear what's going to be able to happen on the site because <clears throat> I mean I'm a bit late to the party I suppose although I've been a part of the resident for a long time I've not been on the council for a number of years and of course 2019 was when I joined but I've obviously read all the reports and this area of portsmouth has always been problematic in in the, what are we going to do with it to make it usable <clears throat> because you have the pan Scrapyard, obviously and there you've got the the, the tip in the west side so it's always a difficult site to know exactly what to do with and how to do it and clearly the commercial developers are literally not going to touch it with a barge pole at the moment because there's just too much cost too much compl- complexity to, to to deal with so I think what the city's uh, decided to do um, back in the was to, was to seek government support to see if we could look at the options to as what to what to do. So, in fact, the council is acting in sort of two ways, really. We've got a team who are proposing development options and we've got the planning committee, which actually has to make a final decision on what is acceptable. So the council has got, got two roles here, which they need to also keep separate. The proposals that have come forward um this idea of what's called Lennox Point has been developed by city council officers, and they've looked at other options as well. And they are leaning very heavily on the idea that we want to go for the maximum development option on Titna, which includes taking out sixty old acres of the mud flats, uh, which is the issue that's caused a lot of controversy. Now, um, the the housing is is part of it. There's also a proposal for. Uh, marine industry development as well and what happened at the council meeting the previous council meeting october when we when the labour group asked for a pause was essentially because we a lot of us felt that we wanted to reappraise and get a really clear picture of what was going on this report has actually provided a lot of useful information of course now in the public domain so we've got much more information that the public can actually look at as well and we wanted that in order to think seriously about how we deal with the site because what happens here is going to be significant for you know years and years to come. The main concern, I think, uh, of all of us, and I attended one of the briefings where I raised questions about this was the why do we have to develop the mudflats? Um, the harbour and the adjacent harbour of Langston and Chichester form a complex linkage of different env- marine environments, which are really very valuable. Um, they hold internationally important wildlife. Um, Populations uh, in, in the winter. They are uh, sites social scientific, of social scientific interest. They are Ramsar sites, which is another European designation. So we're talking about really important areas. And the development proposal, the maximum development proposal suggests that we could provide some mitigation by finding other sites elsewhere to compensate for the fact that we lost all these mudflats. So I asked, well, okay, well, where are these sites? And they said, oh, well, mm. we can look at anything from Dorset through to Sussex. Now, the problem is I, we didn't get much concrete, pardon the phrase, um, information about where these sites were going to be, how are we going to replace this matter? How, and, and I think there's going to be a real problem here because the gov- they would need the, the developer to develop this. We need uh, like a special permission from the government because this does um, damage the environment. And we could only do this under exceptional circumstances. And it's not clear that we would actually get that permission. So I think the development proposals that are even on the table at the moment might not happen. So we have to think about what other options would we would we uh, would we do. I don't think anyone in the Labour Group is saying there should be no development on this site whatsoever. I've not heard that being said uh, by my colleagues. Um, so there is going to be some development, but the question is scale and what
2: impact is going to have on the environment is key here. Okay, because the. I think, Graham, and i not including you in this at all, I think there have been too many councillors <coughs> who, before they've opened their mouths, have not uh, gone and appraised themselves of what this is all actually about. Some of them seem to actually forget what their groups had said they wanted to do. And we had one councillor going on the Stansford and Tipner Action Group, completely agreeing with the people on there, saying, "Yet yeah, there should be no development on on there at all so Mm. this has caused a problem because it's created the perception uh in amongst them and in the Hampton isle of white trust they don't want development on there at least not until recently and I've noticed I think there was a bit of a change there that they said that they accept some some development on there And, and some of the opposition some of the people who have been um campaigning against it they now have completely changed their position um, and saying that yeah, they do accept that there should be some development, but it's all got to be social housing. Um, and that's not gonna pay that's not gonna pay for the sea defences. So um, you know, and, and if we don't pay for sea defences or can't find the money for sea defences, in fact we'll have more mud flats or salt marsh or whatever coming down Titna Road. Well, it's,
3: first thing, it's certainly not clear that the the, that the housing development is the thing that's going to pay for it, because the Environment Agency deals with flood defences and they do protect areas which are non-housing, where it's important. So we don't know where the money potentially could come from. There are figures in the report that went to council about the amount of effectively public subsidy or public support that we need and we're talking millions here but nobody has identified where this money is coming from at the moment so we're not clear as to where it's coming
2: from. yeah you're completely correct you're completely correct and of course you're also completely correct about um natural england i mean natural england could, could is a very strong arm of the government and and could kibosh this because the environmental barriers, as you inferred, are really very high. And uh, all this money could be spent, and then the 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 environmental arm of the government could step in and say, actually, no, this is not gonna happen. So you've got one, you've got the right hand and the left hand in government not appearing to talk to each other. Certainly, we have asked the administration, and I presume the administration before, has asked the government their position on the matters that you've described, Graham, we've had nothing back about it. So, yeah, you know, government is not helping. Well, I think, so just, the, government, I think so- just the
3: government are going to wait and see what these independent agencies are, because, because mm. although they are, they are government agencies, they're not under the control of the government. And it's a good job they're not, because we want them to be independent. We want them to assess properly um, plans. So to take the example of the special designation we need to get to go ahead with this, This is normally only given for infrastructure that and built for buildings or building stuff that is of national importance, like, you know power stations or you know um, transport links that are really absolutely crucial. this has never been done for a development like this which is mainly about housing and a bit about employment. so it would be quite unprecedented I think to do that and I think the campaigners are worried that the government might do that but we'll have to wait and see but you know I, I think that, that this is a real long shot at the moment I think we're going on so we need to think about what what might we do otherwise if this didn't uh,
2: didn't materialize. Indeed, and so, before you, two, Ian, you come, and this brings me to the really important point: is if those two thousand four hundred homes, or the the added two homes, making up to three thousand five hundred, don't go on there, all the people causing a not a fuss, but who who are concerned with this matter, the one thing they won't say in the council, the one thing they won't say elsewhere, is where those three thousand five hundred or 2400 four four hundred or the balance 1100 will go nobody wants to even think about mm. it and, so, and, i'm sorry to be on that this you're making the assumption
3: that all of the housing that's proposed under the different schemes would disappear and nothing would happen that's not what is being said there would be some development on that site so some of the housing that is included that would probably happen under a development but it wouldn't involve taking them no
0: you missed so
2: the, so sorry greg sorry we'll you make, missed the point greg if mm. if the people who don't want any housing there at all were to get their way. And if Natural England say, no, you can't build on on in this place, we've got a problem, which is three thousand five hundred homes or two thousand mm. four hundred. Sorry Ian, I'll shut up yeah.
1: now. Sorry. No, no, no problemly, And it's it's obvious, you know, it's very clear from you both that you're both very passionate about this subject. So so for me from from what I've heard, I think that you know that there appears to be there there appears to be three courses of action Nothing happens, which seems very unlikely. Mm-hmm. There is a more limited development, or the full-blown development. And that's where I, th- I, I seem to be picking up most of the concern. Is about well, to, to get the full three and a half thousand, you are going to have to take out those mudflats, and it it feels like, you know, from an environmental perspective, from the ability to find, I don't know how you find or make mudflats elsewhere. Um, yeah, you know, it it feels like that that may be the that that feels to me like you're articulating that as the biggest issue that will stop this development going forward full blast.
2: Well, it does the, happen.
1: I Did you
3: give you an example? There is there's one example I can talk about. If you go to Selzey, so it's west of Selzey, the was called Medbury, where about ten twelve years ago the Environment Agency decided that. Um, preserving the sea defenses was was unsustainable because it kept flooding and the farmland there was was constantly being flooded So they decided to break the seawall and allow it to be flooded and turned into mudflats, which will create its own protection because the sea is now And the energy is now depleted when it filters into the into this new land That's the only example I can see where there's been some new mudflats and and, uh, intertidal uh, areas created recently so it can be done, but the question is, where do you do it? And and this is where the mitigation that they talk about about replacing what's currently in the harbour and creating it elsewhere is a problem.
1: Mm.
3: Lee, okay, so, so
2: just to what, Lee, just oh, sorry, Simon.
0: Sorry, Lee. Just oh. before you, um, just before I know you were wanting to launch in there. So, um, so I just wanted to interject with a, a point from the from the um, comment stream. So we've got um, Paula as um. Uh, made a contribution about that um, areas such as Lennox Point are a natural defence for our city. Um, If we build on it um, unsustainably and not environmentally, um, it will be another area lost to concrete and therefore from an environmental perspective uh, could pose more of a threat to our our predicted flooding. Um, And Ivy had mentioned earlier um, um and um she'd quoted that it's um it, it it what she said and I quote um it sounds like an awful idea once spaces like that are lost um they never come back and, and she shared the link to the Hampshire Nile of White Trust. Um and another another thing to kind of interject to the to the conversation is that the the way the narrative uh, appears to be is about um a do nothing or do all of this when when actually the report produced shows that there are actually seven different options. Yeah. Um, and actually, there, it seemed from what I observed that there was consensus in the council chamber that doing nothing wasn't viable. That's correct, because um, because there's the danger that the predicted sea level rise that you mentioned uh, earlier on, Lee, it is going to actually wash over this land and bleach all of that contamination into the harbour. So, so something has to be done. Doing nothing isn't is definitely not an option. Surely yeah. there's a, there's some You're, sort look- of you're right round of those seven options, yeah?
2: Yeah, you're right. So that's very important. The point you touch on, uh, I've made a note to, uh, to mention it here. There are streams running underneath this land, as there are all over Portsmouth and Graham knows that. And already the experts in the briefing that I had told told us that these contaminants are getting into the into the SSSI, the Ramsar sites already. So if the sea washes over it, um, it's going to get worse. And how is that protecting the special nature of so this was something that you know it hasn't come up in the conversation so far how is that protecting the uh special scientific interest is that the, the mud flats, um by le- allowing these toxins to leach into the into portsmouth um harbor on the concrete mentioned by ivy was it
0: because i can't see here uh, um and she's well, right um... It it was Paula that mentioned about the concrete. But they're both talking about the same thing of both Paula and Ivy were both saying, once you've built on it, you can't unbuild on it. It's it's then lost as the current resource that it is. That's absolutely right. But the
2: city's been directed by the government to build 17,700 homes. And this is not a red herring, as some people are trying to say. It's a fact. You can't get away from the fact that the last government was uh, elected, on a promise, one of its pledges actually, was to build a million homes nationwide. And everybody's screaming out for new homes, but the minute you try to build them, nobody wants them. Mm. Uh, And in our city, of course, we've got to build 17,700. Leicester, Labour run Leicester, they've got to build 26,000. They've already planned in bits of parks, uh, allotments, school playing fields and green spaces. So we want to avoid that here if we possibly can. But obviously, this case that we're talking about now is very important. And um, although I've got to consider, I've got to keep an open mind because I'm the chair of planning, and, and I may may um, may have to consider an application. Um, I am deeply concerned about the taking away of the mud flats. Equally, I'm concerned about Titna Road and Tipna Lane and the houses in North Stanshaw flooding. I don't want that either. And I'm concerned about how to pay for these defences. I'm also concerned about getting top-end jobs into Portsmouth in the maritime sector so the city becomes better off. So it's all a, it's like a Russian doll, isn't it? Yeah. It's a conundrum, one conundrum within a conundrum. And, um, and, and I think as Graham said earlier on and Ian said, we have no idea where this has come to anything at all because the government decides to pull the plug on it and say so you can't do it, we end up with um, with a whole load of wasted money.
0: So, with um, I mean, obviously, with the predicted sea level rise, um, wouldn't we lose the tidal mud flats anyway? So, the idea is, the idea yeah. should be solely we should be increasing that that ability because it helps us sequest carbon, um, helps us recalling co- um CO two from the atmosphere. So, they're going to be lost anyway because of um because of cl- climate change anyway because of the sea level rise so in, in some sort of way it, it, is that an argument for doing it because you're going to lose them anyway um, and try to lo- relocate them somewhere else is that is, it, could that be an argument for that or am i just looking at that too simplistically
3: i, I think that is an argument <clears throat> that's being being presented but the trouble is it's about the time scales. i mean what time scales are we really talking about here in the, the sea level rise and once you you take away the the mud, the mud flats. Now there's an immediate impact on that because once it it goes, it goes. Um, and the replacement of mud flats. I, I can't remember exactly how long the the Medway project took, but it, it obviously doesn't suddenly appear overnight. It has to develop mm. over years, and it doesn't become a mature site. And you know, after some time. And I'm not a biologist, so I'm sure they would be able to give you a more accurate sort of assessment of that. But I walked down there quite regularly in Medway and saw it develop um and now it is this is what 2007 so it's what 10 10 plus years um before it really becomes um viable so yeah so and because the other thing to, to say is if you if you develop the areas of the mud flats that impacts on the the way the tides work as well in the harbour that'll have some impact we don't quite know what the impact of, of that will be so i think what we're saying is we want more careful consideration about this super peninsula option because i think we think there are some real problems with it both environmentally and also viability anyway financially and that city council should be thinking about what other options to develop on the site which will have some housing and some employment but will not involve um taking over the whole area of, of the mud flats uh, because we could say we potentially we do something on that and the, the subsidy figures that you look at in the report they're all big numbers but to be honest they're all big numbers whatever you do unless you decide to do nothing <laughs>
2: Well, the thing is, we need to get quite quickly to a clear understanding of what is going to be acceptable to the council because the government won't like us fussing around all the time. Uh, We need to get on with it because the sea levels are not going down. They are coming up and we need to get on with it because we need to defend. If we're going to defend the land, we need to defend the land and we need to get it going. Um, So council, all councillors from all parties, really do have a big responsibility here to come to a settled decision about which direct, where they want to go with this. Personally, I think we'll probably settle at the, <laughs> from 2013, the city deal. I reckon that's where it's going to end up. So to that point, uh, gentlemen,
1: when, are, when are we going to get the uh, art? What, what were the next steps following the council meeting? You know, who, who's doing what and when?
2: Well, the, the, the plan is out for consultation, isn't it? So we've got to see what people say about that. And when it comes back, propositions will be brought to the council um, by the administration. My understanding is that the leader of the council is talking with other group leaders. And I hope very much that everybody, um, I don't want to say bang their heads together, but they stop the politicking and get on the serious business of stopping constituents in my ward and their homes and their business from being flooded because this is what's being risked at the moment we saw old portsmouth underwater the other day and over there on the uh east side of the uh east side of the city the sea rolling in it is not this is not something that's not happening it's happening right now
0: mm. um there was a quick question um in i just wanted to yep. bring in from the from the chat um um, this was from Marlene. She said um, she asked, um, ha- and this was also actually brought up by one of the deputations at the meeting. Um, has the council gone through the process of exceptional circumstances to get the housing target required by, from the government? So this is this seventeen thousand odd homes over the next twenty years or whatever it is. Um, apparently, there's a is, there's a way to ask the government to reduce that under exceptional circumstances. of the Of the administration tried that already, or are they waiting for an answer? Or, <coughs> Where, so where would um, be on that at
2: the at the meeting i think gerald said that he i've been i've been out of it for six weeks so I've been not get in the council but i think he indicated that that either that had happened but i know full well that we have approached the government several times we had two notes of motion in the council now uh begging the government to reduce the numbers gerald says the ministers are not listening and they're not in the mood to listening listen but perhaps after next thursday uh, things will change
0: who knows? Indeed, Ian. Do we want to move on to the next topic, or are we?
1: Yeah. So, um. So, I, I think Simon, we, we just wanted to reference and acknowledge um the the motion that was brought by Kirsty Miller and Charlotte Gerarda in terms of violence against women.
0: Uh, yeah. Indeed. Um. Yes. Yeah, so before we go on to the um. On to the the next topic. Um, um. Hopefully there'll be a, a time in the future we can we can get either um either Kirsty or um Charlotte back on the show. Um, but their motion, um, horrific as it was in the in the sense of highlighting, uh, the attacks on women and girls, um, some male perpetrated violence on attacks on women and girls, some really good robust, um, sound measures that it called on the council to take and steps that it called on the council to take, to um to improve um education and improve safety measures. Uh, for women and girls in the city and to improve the, and the conversation that took place in the chamber was about it's male behavior that needs to change not about women keeping themselves safer it's about male behavior and the conversations that take place and education of men so um yeah there was a not all of the motions that we see are as um, as universally um, applauded and accepted um, and they're also not always um, have clear, concise actions that you can see will make a difference to people's lives. And this um, thankfully was one that did.
1: Yeah. And we just wanted to call that out as often when we go through the, uh, the list of full council motions, we as a podcast have been very critical of some of the politicking and nonsense that seems to go on, but that one was, um, was of real value. So we now
2: need to switch on that one. Can I just make something it was because I was in the community safety chair. For about it, about a year, nearly two years. Uh, one of the things that uh, that I think that we don't do enough in this country, and it's not a popular, it's not a popular approach. Sometimes is the perpetrator. Now, when I was younger, my dad used to really whack my dad every week. My mum every weekend. It was awful. You come downstairs, you see your mum in the kitchen, squeezed under a cupboard, being thumped by your dad. It's dreadful. The question is, why was he doing it? You know. So we do need to invest some resources, some money into why why blokes do this why the partners rather do this so that the perpetrator is also um, not resource but you spend some resources finding out why they do it and changing their behavior because many times these people want to carry on living together and this dreadful um, behavior just continues so i think sometimes we forget that we need to also uh, find out why the perpetrator does he does these things uh,
1: uh, yeah, and it, it it is the you know, it, and again, it is about changing those behaviours and understanding yeah. the, the the mindsets that 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 drive something that I w- I would say that most reasonable people just simply can't comprehend. So, you know, very very complex and sensitive issue, and mm. and um yeah, thanks to to Kirsty and Charlotte for bringing that. Indeed,
2: very good, Kirsty Mellor. Okay. Graham, so, you, look like you there's, were
0: there's, trying to say something quickly there uh, yep. sorry the risk is yeah,
1: yeah.
3: starting a whole new debate i mean there's a whole lot of issues yep. around the way um girls and women are treated by men which has been highlighted in schools we've had lots of issues around that so there's a there's a big job to be done i think to um educate and and uh, encourage you know, better behavior all around i mean it's not all kids at school but there there are certainly issues that have been raised by uh, people who said that harassment at school is an issue harassment at other places is an issue so we do we have got a really big task to it we need mm. to keep we need to get on to that very clearly
1: no thank thank you Graham and um yeah no and it's definitely one we will pick up in in a future show and um explore Good. more more fully but we did just want to acknowledge um the 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 value in that that motion which brings us on to planning so there is a there's a bit of a backlog in planning at the moment, um, quite a significant backlog, and um, I guess the, the the challenge is how does um, you know how has that occurred? Um, what what can we do to fix it? And who better than to pose that question to the chair of the um, planning committee? Lee.
2: Well, I t- I uh, checked with you because <clears throat> the the pro- the chair of planning he he ensures the smooth running of the planning committee but obviously i take a much wider interest in that and our Absolutely. planning um indeed um on our planning um portfolio holder the person who sets the strategy the direction and travel and so on is hugh mason so i contacted him today to get the latest update and these planning applications are under 300 now he tells me um and why has it happened like this well you know Anybody would think, and I'm not making excuses, is just, again, I deal in facts and evidence. And the fact is we've had COVID for nearly, what, a year, over a year now. And before that, there was the nitrates issue, with it. anybody likes it or not. And that, we had no planning meetings whilst the nitrates um, equation was being um, worked out. And then COVID decided to overlap us on that after we got going again. And this meant that people were remote working. I don't care what anyone says. This is all great. I think your show last week got caught out by IT issues. Was that right? Did I read it? Yeah. And, and you know, people are working at home and it is not easy to process. And then you've got other consultees. They too have got to be consulted. And if their IT breaks down. So it makes life a lot harder. So these things have gradually um, fallen behind. Having said that, uh officers deal with 98 percent of these things under their delegated powers about a couple of percent can't actually come to the planning committee but even to move those ones on uh, further and more quickly the first thing i did was change the three weekly cycle sorry the monthly cycles to three weekly cycles i tried to get two weekly cycles but the planning officer wasn't wearing it because um his staff can only work so, so, so uh, much. So is that helpful?
1: It it is. I guess the question is, you know, uh, one of the things that was touched on, I think in an earlier motion, was about staff shortages within that department. Has that now been remediated? Are are there enough warm bodies?
2: Okay, i just have one short. We don't pay as much in this city as other councils around us. So every time i go to the planning committee it seems to me there's a new planning officer somewhere on the ride giving a given a presentation so they come and cut their teeth here and then they go off elsewhere so we, we do have shortages and um this is only at the recent council meeting so Hugh will obviously be looking at this with the officers and with the leader of the council to see what more can be done
1: so Graham what's your perspective on the planning backlog well, I did speak briefly in the debate because
3: um, I'm not a member of the planning committee um, and I get cases, not huge numbers, but I get cases coming to me through my role as a ward council. And I've had a number of them over the recent sort of last year. And what was slightly surprising for me was that some of these applications that were being put in by people were, were relatively straightforward. I mean, they weren't mm. complicated uh, applications. And they were waiting months, you know, things that have been um, validated, that is properly Registered in December, were still not being dealt with in June and July, so six, eight months, six, six, seven months onwards. And one of the uh, people who contacted me said they'd had they dealt with three different planning officers who'd come had the case not progressive and then gone. Lee made an interesting point about the salaries that Portsmouth pays. Now that's something the administration could address. Um, one of the things I did notice, because when I wasn't on the council, I happened to bump into some former uh, council planning officers in my travels around the city, and they had been there for a number of years. And the council did actually, during the period from sort of 210 onwards, when the cuts were being uh, implemented, did actually cut back on the planning service. I think in some ways, some people thought it was quite an easy cut to make, um, but I think some of that has maybe rebounded because one we don't appear to pay as much as the local authorities second we have lost a lot of experience planning officers so maybe that has contributed to the problems um, we have now now i have to say i do acknowledge that the city council officers had a, had a really difficult time over the last couple of years partly because obviously of covid and working in that situation has been very difficult um, and i'm sure they are working as hard as they can we did try to bring in or the administration did try to bring in some outside help but um, Councilor Mason, who spoke on Tuesday, said that this hadn't worked very well, we brought some planning consultants in who were supposed to do the job, but for some reason it didn't work very well. And. I don't quite know why, um, but because they're supposed to be planners, but th- th- that didn't work. And I think what was the concern was that we weren't as elected members, particularly those who weren't on planning committee, getting much information about what was going on. We were just getting people complaining to us that things weren't happening, that their applications were delayed. And it would be much better if council officers and the, and the administration in particular had actually grabbed this box and said, we have a real problem. We'll keep you updated every three months about where we are with this. And that would have been really helpful. And we could then have told people who were waiting and concerned about, well, this is where we are. This is what we're trying to do. Because as I say, it's not about trying to beat council officers around the head. That's not That's not um, a good thing to do. But a bit more communication about the problems would have been really, really helpful. I and mean, we didn't really get that. We, well,
2: <clears throat> well, on that, grim and um, you know, I'm not going to politic now, but sometimes the attendance of, um, opposition councillors at the briefing meetings aren't that good uh, when i was a, in opposition i attended all of mine and unfortunately sometimes not everybody's quite so good i mean in my community safety portfolio one particular person never showed up at all from start to finish or maybe once so that is the way that we cascade this information down through briefings and so on so and it's always also incumbent i think on councillors if they're <clears throat> proactive that they go and seek out the information too, um, but you're but you are right. The more that we can do, the more that we can talk about it, the more information we can get out there in all sorts of ways, and we'll look to explore that um, and try and keep people even more informed than we try to do now.
1: And I guess when we look at this, you know, most people when they think about you know the, the planning backlog, um, would naturally gravitate towards developers and and you know new builds and that kind of thing but i guess the majority of these cases are are people who simply are looking to put in a loft extension or build a garden office or uh, and i guess my question there is with with so much of this um you know is is the has planning just become a rubber stamping exercise or, or is there you know is there still value in this process in terms of getting those Know, local officers to 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 apply as much scrutiny as they do to what to most lay people would seem a very simple
2: request. Can I go first Graham? Do you yeah, mind? Sure. Yeah, no, that's... So <clears throat> I think the government is neutering local government, national government is neutering local government. We used to have city engineers that when a pavement was put down a city engineer would go along and make sure all the pavement was level and that the the contractors had done that now the now the contractors have to say that they've done it in the same way you have a changes done to your house you know the planning officer will come around people will come and check and I know they still do but when I had my house done they didn't come for nearly eight months later <laughs> which which is crazy because all the work had been done the simple mm. fact is whether any of us like it or not Ian the government and Graham I'm sure won't won't um Uh, defray from this view, the government's cut the council's income in half, in in about, and including under the Liberal Democrat um, uh, Coalition too, and under previous Labour governments. Funding for local authorities has always gone down. National governments don't like local government, and that's the first time they, that's where they look to take money from very quickly, and we have to just cope with it. But half the money has gone from portsmouth so you've still got to deliver the same sorts of services at the same quality and in the same speed that people are used to but on half the money and it's very tough but we have to get on with it we have to we have to try and do that uh, and but before ball out when um, uh, um graham mentioned about increase as it's a cat increasing the, the salaries of people yes of course we can do that we'll look at that i'm sure we will look at that but then the, the that that the money that's paid towards those extra salaries it's got to come from somewhere and the the the, the main soak as excuse my friend says soak away of the council's money is education adult care and so and um, children's care so if you spend more money in one place inevitably it's going to come out of that or maybe been trafficking transportation which is mostly ring fenced nowadays so it's very difficult so these are not easy choices to make graham
3: yeah i mean it's not about members going to briefings when we all have planning applications to deal with on people Coming to us about planning issues so really all members should be given some sort of briefing and, and, I, and I did suggest this to one of the officers um that, that they should do something for us every three or four months just to let us know where we are with it and that would help us uh, to uh, to know what's going on because i don't attend planning committee unless somebody has a real objection to things. on ian's point about the do we do we actually need planning officers to do this so basically you were saying can't we just let, like just nod them all through because it doesn't really matter it's so small it doesn't matter mm. The the problem is for a lot of these small applications. For example, if you're having a, a an extension at the back of your house, it has to go come within certain size uh, to make sure it's it's valid. And then there'll be issues about whether there's uh, proximity to existing boundaries overlooking all these things so judgments have to be made about this and there will be objections people do object and we can't just say to people well sorry we're not going to do anything about it you know they have to assess it against the planning policies and the planning rules that we have so there does have to be an exercise in doing that but you're quite right it is not just you know anonymous development companies that are affected by this it's ordinary people ordinary businesses who want to make some changes to the frontage of their premises or maybe to do some changes uh, in the premises to make them viable for their business that need some sort of permission so it is a, a affecting real people and i suppose it goes back to the point lee made he talked about the prioritization of services that we had to fund when you've got this sort of front-facing service where people's lives are affected that's one of the ones that really has to be given some consideration when you come to looking at budgets because it does affect people really it's not just a i say anonymous developers who can wait or be said to wait
2: yes you're right but look you know when i do my briefings every three weeks anybody can come and I've written out to all councillors a couple of times said if you want to come to my briefing on planning you're more than welcome and I very rarely see anybody except me and the officers concerned I'm um, Julia a good attendee and yes. um, a, a couple of others but th- th- I never see people and they don't they don't and if you're a good counselor you you're going to get out there you're going to be proactive and you're going to find out what's impacting your ward um and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna make inquiries i thought that's what councils are supposed to do and sometimes you know they shouldn't be spoon-fed by officers they've got to go and find out stuff
3: this is not spoon in i'll just give you one example when i was chairman of housing back in the 1990s we had a real crisis over the administration of housing benefit claims um i won't go into the history but it was complicated and difficult and we weren't doing it very well and it was on my agenda as the chairman of housing every single week about what was going on. And I said to officers, what we need to do is to make sure that we tell the elected members who are getting people complaining, they're not getting to have a benefit, what's going on, what we're doing about it, and we should brief them regularly. Uh, I didn't mean every week, but at least every, every month or so, because benefits were slightly different. And I said, we need to have a um, fast track route for hardship cases so that we deal with those first. Everyone obviously needs their housing benefit if they're On it on it but some cases are harder than others so we needed a process and we you know it took some while to get it sorted but we did do that and i was conscious that members would be getting complaints about it and they would need to know so i said to officers tell them what's going on give them regular briefings if they um, and, and that's what we can do. It's not about spoon feeding. It's about sharing information. And you know, I I, I attend all the briefings I can, but I also have have to have a, have a job to do. I, I work, mm. so I can't always attend everything. I couldn't attend all the the briefings because they were when I was teaching. But you know, I try to do my very best. And uh, so we don't want to exclude people, you know, who have other who have jobs and and you know work in the real world from being counselors. So you should be given a bit of leeway there. I think on that.
1: No, thank you. I was, thank I was you. going to ask actually on
0: that point: is that these briefings that you're talking about? Obviously, some people aren't for, like you say, if they, you know, um, their other commitments aren't able to attend. Can they get they get these briefings another way? Um, do they they get they get the documents sent to them? How does that they, work? They they
3: could do yes. I mean when I was involved in health and social care, which is the thing I was doing last year in traffic transportation, we always used to try and arrange the briefings when we could all meet it. And they were quite good because I would say I'd prefer mine at the end of the day when I can do it rather than the middle of the day, because it's difficult to to stop and then go back and then come back. So so they were quite good. And and we, we have some all member briefings, you know, after five o'clock for things, which is quite handy for all of us to be able to get together. So they, they, they do try. Um
1: but yeah, that's what you have to think about. So Gentlemen, th- thank you both in the interest of time. Oh, look, we've run out of time. Oh, Has it gone no,
2: already?
0: We, uh, no, we haven't. <laughs> Has it gone already?
2: I wish,
1: I wish that we that had, is- but no, no. I,
0: I Ian, am, we're not having a Christmas party.
1: Yeah, no, I am timekeeper, and I've realised that we've left enough time to discuss Partygate. Simon, do you want to kick this one off while I just
0: curl up in a ball under my desk and sob quietly? Um. Okay. So, yes. So, <clears throat> um, it's come to the nation's attention that, um, apparently, some party or parties, um, have taken place, possibly taken place at um at Ten Downing Street. That apparently, Number Ten initially denied ever happening, but then actually, while well, denying that they actually happened, were then absolutely certain that rules were followed, even though that they were certain that they didn't happen, which is kind of this weird. Schrödinger's cat thing of there is either a cat in that box or there isn't a cat in that box but it's definitely a ginger tom. Um so there's that kind of going on um in the background of actually what's happening in the real world of obviously the government launching the plan B restrictions to uh, combat Omicron. So um just out of interest what's um what's your take on the current situation and the importance of being able to believe and trust um, the people that are making decisions and that they're following the same rules that you are. And if I could go to Graham first.
3: Yeah, well, it's the old story. It's, it's it's the cover up that does for you, doesn't it? Because trying to cover up what's going on rather than being upfront and honest is probably the thing that's got Boris Johnson and his government into, into a lot of trouble. I have to say I think it's also a combination of things, there's been a combination of things that have happened over recent weeks, what I think have undermined trust in the government and undermined trust in the Prime Minister in particular, if you remember um, his attempt to um, subvert the um, process for investigating uh, Owen Paterson in order to try and save him, was a total disaster which was reversed within 24 hours, and it was perfectly plain to just about everybody except Boris that this was not a good idea, but he sought to do it and he damaged himself and he, he damaged the Conservative government quite seriously with that. Then we have the the party, which there was some evidence for, but instead of saying, let's investigate this, he claimed there was nothing nothing to see here, you know, and then shortly after he's then forced to backtrack and then have an investigation. Um, so. It does undermine trust. And of course, the other problem I think that occurred with that is at a time when many families were saying they couldn't be relatives, couldn't go to see the mum or dad in care homes or whatever, people in Downing Street were apparently not abiding by the rules. And people really resent the fact being told by those in authority, do this because it's in our best interest. And then finding that the people who are governing us or involved in governing us don't do it. Um and it, it really annoys people and it clearly has that had that effect but i think it's not just about the party but it's about the cumulative effect of things that have been happening over the recent months about whether you can trust the government and whether they are up and honest with us um
0: and whether they're behaving ethically indeed thank you lee
2: well um it is just symptomatic of um the problem we have with our politics in the country it doesn't work um it, it it could be this government you can look back at previous governments you can look at cash for access you can get cash for honors um the Iraqing, the um, invasion of um uh, the the trouble that blair got into over the middle east all sorts of different things the trouble is that uh, we we have a duop- a duopoly in politics we for the last 100 years the country's been Run by the same party, virtually the Conlab Party, the Conservatives or Labour, and they all melt into each other. So, uh, and they both have the same sort of sponsors. They're sponsored by large companies, rich individuals, Sainsbury's, whoever. Uh, and and both those two big parties, those major parties, um, they suffer from this in a way because the country doesn't want to pay for its politics, so they go private, as it were, and um, Labour get get money from the unions uh, and private businesses and the, the Conservatives get money from... So what I'm saying is we need to ditch it all and we need to move to more consensus politics. We need to move towards pr- um, proportional representation where a Green vote, a UKIP vote, a Labour vote, a Conservative vote, a Liberal Democrat vote, Uh, reform, they all weigh the same, so that when we end up with a parliament, we have a parliament that represents the vote, that is maybe 200 Tories, 210 Labour, 30 Lib Dems, 50 SNP. That's how it should be, really, in my opinion. And then you get better accountability. Then this kind of stuff stops, or should stop, or will be easier to stop.
0: Okay, um, as we said earlier on, um, unfortunately, um, our, um, we reached out to the local Conservatives um, and unfortunately, um, we, we weren't able to secure um, one to come on the show. But Ian, as, um, as, as, a, as a Conservative supporter and member, did you want to comment on your view of what's happening?
1: Yes, thank you, Simon. I've crossed the floor. I've, crossed. I'm now now become a, uh, a a pundit rather than a presenter. But no, for me, I, I, I think the whole Partygate thing is it's pretty shameful um, because you know it, it, it the the actual mechanics and the accuracy of what went on and. Was it a workplace gathering where some people bought a few bottles of wine? Was it more than that? We don't know. But the optics of it, it is one of arrogance. It, its It's one of we can probably bend the rules because, well, we're in number 10. So the rules don't apply to us. And for me, the danger in that is that people across the country who Lee rightly highlighted, you know, had had kind of, you know, deferred their own personal Christmas to, to do the right thing, and I think Graham touched on it as well, basically are now looking back at that and saying, well, hang about, you know, we were doing the right thing and the people at the very heart of government weren't. So the optics look terrible. And my, my biggest issue with it is the element of... <laughs> If you are caught doing something wrong, the the decent thing to do is to recognise that you have done something wrong, say sorry, and take the appropriate action. And I think that, for me as a Conservative, is what's been the biggest omission of Boris Johnson's leadership. The fact that the right thing to do, which for me is at the heart of Conservative values, it's about doing the right thing. They're old-fashioned values. It's about playing with a straight back. It's about honesty and integrity. That seems to have been lost to a culture of "Don't worry about this, boys. We've got an 80 majority. We'll blag it." And you know, we saw that with Robert Jenrick. We saw that with Mister Patterson. You know that that oh come on if i twist your arm and threaten to withdraw funding for your local constituency you'll vote with me to get mr patterson off the hook the optics of that are terrible and ultimately as a one nation conservative i, I have found the last you know at least six months very very painful boris johnson is not fit to lead and that is abundantly clear and my hope is that everything that's gone on will lead to him leaving office, because ultimately I, so. I don't think I don't think it's good for the country. I don't think it's good for the Conservative Party. I don't think, at the moment, him being in Number Ten and PM is good for anybody other than Boris Johnson's ego. And it hurts me to sit here and say that, you know. But for me, I, I fear for Thursday. I think north shropshire has gone um you know again the 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 whiff around it being you know the the constituency of the chap who finally resigned after you know that that should have happened long before any votes to try and save him should have happened um, i fear north shropshire is lost and my my only hope is that that leads to a change in the leadership of the conservative party and um you know we we can and you three won't agree with me we can get ourselves back to where we should be
0: and go on and win the next election opposition um okay thanks ian so um if i can quickly then ask um ask and graham um so what do you think is going to happen? so ian's referring there to the north thropshire by-election on thursday um which um even the bookies now have the Lib Dems um as um as favourites to win. So that was Owen Patterson's um constituency and, until he resigned. Um so are the Lib Dems gonna win it? Is Boris Johnson gonna still be Prime Minister by uh, by August um sorry, by April, Lee?
2: Me. Oh well it looks very much like the Liberal Democrats will win it, but you can never say for certain, can you? Um uh, I've been having some conversation with uh, some very strong Labour um, people. They don't want, that they're begging people to vote Labour. But we do have to come to an agreement, Graham, across Labour and the Liberal Democrats, not to have an an agreed position, but where obviously um, in the very contested seats where the Liberal Democrats are, you know, close second, or second to the to the um, Conservatives, Labour won't get to form a government unless they come to some sort of agreement with the Liberal Democrats in those places. So we shall have to see what happens. And I think that happened here in North North Shropshire and whether that um, uh, is gonna happen again elsewhere, we will have to wait and see. But if it does, then Boris Johnson should be, sorry, the Tory party should be very concerned because reform Look like they're going to take a few votes as well, gradually.
0: Graham.
3: Yeah, well, the fact we're talking about a seat that's never returned anything other than a Conservative MP going, you know, right, right back to I think the uh, you know the twentieth century, two hundred years, yeah, um, is is quite is quite astonishing. Um, so I, I think there is a possibility that that, that they will they will lose it. Um, the interesting thing to look at will be the turnout. Because um, the question is, is this conservative voters staying at home, or is this a truly strong swing of conservative voters switching to another party? Um, um,
2: you can say the that, Lib Dems if you like. Well, <laughs> <laughs>
3: it's all right. I put my I put my I put my other daily daily working hat on as election politics to talk about uh talk about the swings. That. But no, it will be interesting if, if, there's, if there's a high turn if there's a high turnout and. Um, that will probably mean more people switching, which is certainly going to be worrying for the Conservatives because if they're doing it in North Shropshire, they may well do it elsewhere. And and if I put my Labour Party hat on, um, whilst obviously we'd love to be in a position to um, be challenging here, um, it's going to be interesting if the Conservatives are going to have to defend on two fronts rather than one front. So they're going to have to defend against Liberal Democrats in some areas and against Labour in the other. That's going to produce some interesting uh, contests
1: in forthcoming elections. It mm-hmm. certainly
0: is. Oh, we so, look forward to the leaflets.
1: So, gentlemen, one word answers. Boris, still Prime Minister in April? Lee? No. He must go Graham? by Christmas. One word uh, answer? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Simon? No. Ian? Oh, oh. Can I do a one word answer? God, I hope so. Hashtag. It's a one-word answer. Um, I hope he's gone by by April. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm going to say I'm going to say no. So three to one. There you have it. So want to thank everybody for listening to the Pompey Politics podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, and our guests have been Lee Hunt. Me. Cheers. <laughs> I'm going out for a beer now. And Graham, and Graham Heaney. Thank you very much. Uh, and I've been Simon Sansbury. Thank you very much for listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. Uh, we'll return in the new year, so we wish all of our listeners a uh, fantastic Christmas. Please do keep safe. Um, and we'll see you next year. Thank you very much for your support. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows, and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting
2: Pompey Politics Podcast. Blue and yellow till we die from Amazon music. Alexa. Playing the latest episode.
0: Sing? It's easy.